right, that's it for news in the life of the church. Now we're going to hear from God's word, and uh, Pastor Dan Hong from Grace Church of Greenwich is going to give it to us. Thanks, Dan. Well, it's um, always a joy to be here with you at Grace Church Stanford. Um, we at Grace Church of Greenwich are thankful for your friendship and your partnership. And um, our children are particularly thankful uh, for the gaga pit you let them use during VBS. Uh, they absolutely loved it. So thank you for that. Well, uh, let me uh, pray as we begin. Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. You speak kind words to us, and you want us to hear them and live. So please give us ears to hear. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, look at the book of Jonah, and it may be one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Uh, most people know that Jonah is a grumpy man who ran away from God and ended up in the belly of a fish. And for many of us, Jonah is a children's story, and we haven't really thought about it since. But let me say, revisiting Jonah has been very good for me. And this book, while it is named after him, it's not really about Jonah. It's actually a story about God. And what we find here is that God is much kinder than we think. Uh, most of us have a view of God that sells him short. We all wonder if God is really for us. Sometimes it feels like he's absent, not paying attention, too busy to care. You know, the, uh, the busy father who's only half listening to the conversation because his mind is still at work. We think God is like that. Or uh, maybe we feel that God is always disappointed with us. And all we ever see is a stick and not a carrot. We think he's out to teach us a lesson, to make our lives miserable, because we deserve to be miserable. He's the stern father, always frowning, always rebuking, and his children never measure up. They are never good enough for him. If your view of God is something like that, this book is designed to correct that view. And it gives us a window into God's heart. And what we will find there is a God who is personally invested in the people he has made. And he wants them to be blessed. What he wants for them is good. God is kinder than we think. That's the point of this book. So let's dive into chapter 1. And let me read uh, Jonah chapter 1. I need to find it first. There it is. Jonah chapter 1. It's on uh, page uh, 774 of the church Bibles. And let me read from verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry lands, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what we see here in this chapter are two movements in the story. So we have Jonah who runs from God and sinks, and we have the sailors who turn to God and live. So let's start with Jonah, the first movement in the story. Now, to understand Jonah, the person, the human being, we need to understand where he came from. What was he doing before 1 verse 1, before the word of the Lord came to him? Everyone has a background, a history, and it just so happens that we know something about Jonah's. And you can read his story in 2 Kings chapter 14. And Jonah was a successful prophet in Israel. He was chaplain to the king, and God used him to bring prosperity to his people. Under his ministry, Israel enjoyed a renaissance, a rebirth. They reclaimed all the land they had lost since the days of Solomon. It was a second golden age for the kingdom of Israel, and that was Jonah's ministry. 
Um, every now and then I hear stories about Bible studies on Capitol Hill with senators and representatives or in the White House with members of the cabinet. And, and then, of course, I start daydreaming about what I would do if I were leading those studies. But that was Jonah. He was chaplain to the king, the spiritual architect of his nation's prosperity. It's easy to write Jonah off as an angry little man, but we need to remember where he came from. Before the events of this book, he had a background, a history, and up until this point, he had a very successful ministry. On the other hand, you have the city of Nineveh, which is the city where God wants to send him. And again, these, these places, these names are so far removed that it's hard for us to know who they are. But God says two things about Nineveh that should tell us something about that city. And verse 2, it's a great city. And the end of verse 2, it's an evil city. Their evil has come up before me, God says. And just to give you a sense for how evil they truly are, in about 30 years, one generation after the events of this book, the city of Nineveh will become the architects of the first holocaust, the first attempt to eradicate the Jews, and they were mostly successful. They committed genocide on the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Let me put it this way. You will never meet a Jew from the tribe of Reuben or the tribe of Zebulun, because those tribes no longer exist. And these were Jonah's people. They were members of his family, his fathers and mothers, his brothers and sisters, his sons and daughters. He was probably from the tribe of Zebulun. But 30 years after the events of this book, his people would be systematically eradicated. Now, did Jonah know this was going to happen? Probably not, but he must have seen their evil. He knew what they could do if ever given the chance. So Jonah was the architect of his nation's prosperity, but Nineveh would be the architects of its holocaust. So sending Jonah to the city of Nineveh is like sending a Jew to Berlin in 1941. We need to understand the context to understand Jonah's reaction. God is asking him to do the unthinkable. This is a very hard thing that God has asked him to do. And again, it's easy to laugh at Jonah. And yes, there's humor in the story. I think Jonah's laughing at himself as he tells the story of his life. But instead of laughing at Jonah, we should take the time to understand him. Otherwise, we'll struggle to apply this text to ourselves. Jonah applies whenever God puts us in unthinkable situations. When God puts us somewhere we don't want to be, that's when Jonah applies. And that's what God has done to Jonah. When he tells him to go to the city of Nineveh, God is asking him to do the unthinkable. So verse 3 is a very understandable reaction. Jonah rose to flee from the presence of the Lord. And 
just to clear up another misunderstanding, Jonah knows that he can't run away from the Lord. He's not that dumb. He has good theology. He knows the Lord is everywhere. When Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord, this is Jonah resigning his prophetic commission. Prophet stood in the presence of the Lord. And Jonah is saying, I don't want to do that anymore. If this is how you're going to use my life, if this is where you want me to be, then I quit. I refuse to be part of this. And, and let's give Jonah some credits. He's not quiet quitting. He's not collecting a paycheck while he's checked out at work. He has the integrity to tender a resignation, to make his position known. And when he gets on a ship to Tarshish, that's him resigning in protest. And very early in the story, uh, there are hints this is not going to end well for Jonah. Notice the direction of his movements. Three times we are told that Jonah went down. So verse 3, the second sentence of that verse, he went down to Joppa. Verse 3 again, the next sentence, he paid the fare and went down into the ship. And then verse 5, the middle of that verse, Jonah went down into the inner part of the ship. There's a sense, an ominous hint, that Jonah himself knows how the story will end. And the chapter ends with Jonah at the bottom of the sea. Jonah runs from God and he sinks. Now, let me pause here because I want us to see there's a lesson here for us. And the lesson is this. No matter how bad it gets with God, it's always worse without him. Um, let me just say, being with God is not easy. Sometimes he does the unthinkable. Sometimes he is very perplexing. Sometimes he puts us in unbearable situations. Jonah doesn't like where God is sending him. He doesn't like what God is doing with his life. And yes, he knows that God is the creator of all things and the controller of all things. He says it in verse 9. It's the only time he speaks. And he says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But I wonder, what was the tone of that confession? How does he feel about the God he professes to believe? I wonder if there's resignation or even resentment in those words. And Jonah knows what the sailors have come to learn at the end of verse 14. You, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. But again, for Jonah, that's not a happy truth. God does whatever he wants. He always gets his way. He does as he pleases. And that's precisely the thing Jonah doesn't like. God's control is a source of grief, not a source of comfort. And can I say, we've all been here. We've all been in Jonah's shoes. Whenever God does the unthinkable, when he puts us through the unbearable, we will all be tempted to do a Jonah and run away from God. Think of it this way. Have you ever questioned God's wisdom when he puts you in a place you don't want to be? 
Don't we all wonder if God made a mistake? Don't we question the choices he makes for our lives? Or have you ever doubted his goodness? When you read the Psalms, do you come away feeling empty? There's so many wonderful promises about God being there for his people, but does it leave you feeling cold? And you're not sure you believe it. When we question God's wisdom, when we doubt his goodness, when we grumble in discontent, that's the sound of our hearts running away from God. We've all felt this at some point in our lives. Being with God is not easy. But here's the reason we should stick with him. Where else will you go? What other options do you have? I've watched people try to build a fortress around their lives. What do I mean by that? Well, you don't have to be a prepper to be prepping for the worst. We all do this in one way or another. We think our money will buy us out of trouble. We think our friends will catch us when we fall. And if you have enough money in the bank and the right friends on speed dial, then you have a wall that is high enough and thick enough to stand against any storm. We all know that's not true. Everything sinks in the storm. Your money, your friends, your job, your family. If you're counting on them to keep you afloat, you know how that story ends. There's no wall thick enough or high enough to keep us safe forever. And there's one storm we all have to face, and there's nothing that can keep us afloat. But there's one thing that does not sink in the storm, and that is the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And yes, he is the one who sends the storm, but he's also the one who can save you from it. So where else will you go? Look, um, I know this is not the most inspiring reason to stay with God, stick with him, because your other options are worse. (laughs) But sometimes that's all we can manage. Sometimes it's hard to see the goodness of God. The prayer I find easiest to pray is the one that Peter prays at the end of John chapter 6. And at the end of a very disappointing day, after 5,000 men have done a Jonah and run away from Jesus, and the 12 are the only ones who are left, Jesus turns to them and he says, do you want to go as well? And I love Peter's response. He says, Lord, where else will we go? What other options do we have? And I love that prayer because it's so realistic. It's not easy being with the Lord. But then we look around us and we realize there really is nowhere else to go. Look, I know we're setting the bar pretty low. Stay with God because your other options are worse. That's probably not the reason you signed up to be a Christian. But that is the point of Jonah 1. Jonah doesn't like what God is doing. He doesn't like where God has put him. But where else will you go? Who else can save you from the storm? The Lord, the God of heaven, 
who made the sea and the dry land. He's the only one who doesn't sink. And he's the only one who can keep us afloat. Well, let's turn now to the uh, second movement in the story. And the sailors turn to God and live. And you may have noticed there's a progression of fear in the story of the sailors. And first, they fear the storm. Let's start again from verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Now, it may be that we've never been in a storm on the sea, but I want to suggest that we've all faced something like this. If you've ever found yourself at the end of your rope, if you've ever realized that your hands are not big enough and your arms are not long enough and your mind is not sharp enough to find a solution to your problem, then you know what it's like to be in the storm. Some enemies are beyond us and there's nothing we can do to stop them. And these sailors, they're out of their depth. They're doing everything they can to keep the ship afloat, but they have run out of options. The storm is beyond them, and it's about to swallow them up, and there's nothing they can do about it. So of course they're afraid. Any sane person would be. And that brings us to the second fear. They fear what Jonah fears. Let's read again from verse 9. Jonah said to the sailors, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? And you can hear the disbelief in their voices. You complete idiots. Why would you run from a God like that? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, they have taken a step in the right direction because now they believe in the Lord. But at this point in the story, their view of God is the same as Jonah's view of God. And it's a negative view, a terrifying view, an accurate view, but it's only half the picture. Because at this point, all they have to go on is what they've heard and what they've seen. And what they've seen is raw and terrifying power. And that's all they know at this point. They know that God has the power to destroy and the authority to judge, but that is all they know. And at this point, they think the point of the storm is to put Jonah in a watery grave, and they're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's the kind of God that makes you want to run. And can I say, many people, including Christians, Many people are stuck on this partial and terrifying view of God. They see the power, but not the goodness. They see the control, but not the care. And it might be worse than the first fear. The sailors were less afraid when they thought the storm was random. But Jonah tells them it's not random. There's a God behind the storm. And if that's all you know, if all you know is that God is in control 
and he does whatever he wants, that's not a good place to be. That's only half the picture, and you're seeing the terrifying half. I'd rather believe in a storm that is random than a storm that has malice behind it. And whenever God does the unthinkable, when he makes us face the unbearable, we'll be tempted to have Jonah's view of God, a God who is sovereign but not kind, a God who is powerful but not good, a God who is in control but doesn't care, a God who uses his power to destroy. But that's only half the view. That's only half the picture. And if that's all you're seeing, you'll have a very distorted view of God. And like Jonah, you will want to run. And this brings us to the third fear, the end of the sailor's story. And they learn to fear the Lord. Notice their prayer in verse 14. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish. That's a prayer for salvation. They're asking the Lord to save them. And he does. Verse 15, he answers that prayer. The sea ceased from its raging. And when they see what happens, verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Now, here's the question. How is this different from the second fear? They still see his power. They see his control over the storm. But what else do they see that they haven't seen before? Well, now they see the purpose of that power, the point of that control. And now they know that the point of all of it is to save and notice, this is the greatest fear of all, the fear that displaces all other fears. They see God for who he is in all of his glory, and they are exceedingly afraid. You may recognize of echoes of Jonah in Mark chapter 4, when Jesus rebukes the wind and calms the storm with the word, the disciples respond with fear. And of course they do. Who wouldn't be afraid? They're beginning to see that Jesus is more than just a man. He is the Lord who made the sea, and the wind and the sea obey him. And when you're confronted with that kind of power, it's rational to be afraid. But this is a good kind of fear, the right kind of fear, because when you're up against a storm, you do not want a puny God. You want a God who can save. And yes, God does as he pleases. He does whatever he wants. But what does he find pleasing? What does he want? And the answer to that question will tell you whether his control should terrify you or comfort you. God literally moves an ocean in this story. And he's the one behind every storm, both literal and metaphorical. But to what end? Why does he move the sea? What's the purpose of the storm? Well, according to Jonah, the answer is this. God does as he pleases, but it pleases him to save. 
That's why he sends the storm. That's why he moves the sea to save this group of sailors. And, and these sailors, these poor sailors, they got caught up in a fight between Jonah and his God. In any other story, these are the random characters, the one episode characters, the ones who don't even have a name. In the credits, they're listed as Sailor One, Sailor Two. They're the background to the main drama, the collateral damage to the main fight, and they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And they're pagans. They're polytheists. They're idolaters. So what if they perish? Why should God care about them? In any other story, these sailors do not matter. But in this story, in God's story, they're not random characters. They're not collateral damage. And sure, we don't know their names, but God knows who they are. And the point of this storm was the salvation of their souls. God moves an ocean so they can come to know him. That's why God sends the storm. And even Jonah, even he was not destroyed by the storm. That wasn't the point of it. So yes, God does as he pleases. He does whatever he wants. But it pleases him to save. He uses the storm for good. And right now, we can't see it. From where we're standing, that's a very hard thing to see. How can this storm lead to anything good? That's the question we'll be asking in our hearts. And when the storm is dragging you down, it's very hard to see the goodness and wisdom of God. But one day we will. That's the promise of Jonah 1. At the end of this chapter, we have a moment of calm and clarity. And that's a foretaste of our future, the peace after the storm, a window into God's heart. And one day we will see that God moves oceans for his people. This is the full view of God. This is what the sailors have come to see. And that is why they turn to him and worship him. Let me close with one final observation. The God who sends the storm is also willing to face it. We have a God who knows what it's like to suffer, and he volunteered for it. Um, 800 years after Jonah, another prophet named Jesus volunteered to die so that others might live. Jonah, as flawed as he is, he turns out to be a picture of the Messiah, the suffering servant, the one who redeems the people of God. But this prophet was the Lord himself, the one who made the sea and the dry land. But they buried him in the land. They threw him into the sea. And when he went in, he sank. There was nothing there to catch him. And he sank so that we might live. And if the storm of all storms brought salvation to the world, and you can trust the one behind the storm because it pleases him to save.
Suffering can be terrible. Sometimes it can be unthinkable. And sometimes even unbearable. But for those who turn to God, it is never meaningless because God moves oceans for his people. Let me close in prayer. Father, you are a refuge and a strength, a very present help in trouble. And when the waters roar and the mountains fall, you are a shelter from the storm. And if we put our trust in you, we will not be put to shame. When we struggle to hang on to you, please hang on to us. For blessed are all who take refuge in your Son. And we ask this in his name.